Welcome to the Limerick Treasures podcast, the podcast where we interview interesting and influential people about their lives and find out what it is that they treasure about Limerick. I'm your host, Katie Flannery, and this week's guest is author, creative writer, and professor of sociology at the University of Limerick, Owen Devereaux. So, Owen Devereaux, you're a lecturer in the Department of Sociology at the University of Limerick, but you're also a writer, a creative writer a music fan and you mix these worlds together the sociology and music and you've written extensively on bands such as Joy Division, The Smiths and artists such as Bowie and Morrissey so there's a lot to unpack there but I'm going to start off with the question how did you get into music or when did your passion for music first ignite? I was 12 years of age which was a million years ago I was at home my parents were going to um a dress dance, that's a, an old antiquated term now to be using, but they were getting all dolled up to go to a dress dance. I remember my dad was doing his hair and he had a dress suit on, black tie, and a band literally crashed onto the screen on RT television. And the band were the Boomtown Rats. And they, for me, opened this sort of door into punk music. And really from that day, it was, and I didn't know it at the time, and it was, it was like an electric shock. And um, I, I, I became really, really interested in, I mean, I'd been interested in music anyway, but I became really, really interested in punk music and rock music and so on. And it's kind of hard to think now, but by the age of 14, I had my own radio program on a pirate radio station in Limerick. So I mean, I was kind of brazen enough to go and ask the owner of a pirate radio station, could I have my own radio show playing uh, punk music? Uh, began to do that and even at that early age kind of 15 or 16 interviewed a lot of bands and one of the bands I interviewed was a band called U2 and U2 had won a competition on Shannon Street in Limerick so if people know Limerick and they know the Stella Bingo uh, there is a ballroom where the bingo takes place and if you look carefully at the building even now in 2020 you'll see a plaque commemorating the fact that U2 effectively formed, they were a band called The Hype and they became U2 at this competition in Limerick. So they came back to Limerick for one other gig in 1980. Uh, They had just released their second single and I went along bold as brass with my cassette recorders. Again, think of the technology, excuse me, and I recorded an interview with Bono. And then I just went on and did lots of things like that the whole way through secondary school. I messed up my leaving cert, but failed it, got expelled and had a lot of gob and attitude and then I went back and I studied and did my leaving sort of second time and and went on to university so it's it's all like it's always been there yeah wow and you mentioned there the boomtown rats and I actually saw you on the television screen there about two weeks ago and you were talking with great passion about the boomtown rats and I think Irish music or Irish punk and rock music is something that you really you're very passionate about and you really like to push that I am. I mean, I mean, I mean, obviously, since then, and you know, since since you know, I've, I've since I've grown up, um, obviously, my musical horizons have, have have expanded. But I think it's almost impossible to explain to people in their teens or in their early adulthood now um, how explosive that was. Ireland in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties was a really, really, really grey, conservative place to be, and music played a really significant role in bringing about social change. So 
when we think now about things like divorce or decriminalizing homosexuality or marriage equality, you know, or, or, or family planning, whatever like that. I mean, Ireland, you know, 30, 40 years ago was a very different planet. Music played a huge role in getting, I suppose, younger people to kind of rise up and think more critically and open up the world uh, to them. So as I, I said earlier, it was like an electric shock and uh, it's an electric shock that hasn't gone away. I'm 55 now, so that's a long time ago. And I listen to music every day and it's, it's as exciting now to me as it was then. Hmm. I think also now as well, you must feel absolutely spoiled coming from Limerick and just the music that is coming out of Limerick at the moment is just amazing. It's like we're nearly pioneering great music for nearly the whole of Ireland. So is there anyone or any bands or, or singers or artists coming out of Limerick that you're, you're really excited about? Well, I, I kind of bookend it really, um, Katie. Uh, so on the one hand, you have the phenomenal success of the Cranberries globally. They've sold nearly 50 million records and part of what I've been doing in the last couple of years. I've worked with the band in terms of a number of, of, of projects. So they've just two weeks ago re-released their second album, No Need to Argue. And they asked me to write a, a kind of a long history of the record and where it was made and so on. So for example, Zombie, the song Zombie, now recorded by over 50 other artists. The first time Zombie was played was in a shed in Mungret in County Limerick. So it documents all of that. So there's the Cranberries and, and there's huge success. Um, a band who are no longer with us, but who, who broke up only a year or so ago called Slow Riot. They, I think, were of huge significance. They, they made an album, they, they, they broke up, but uh, their album, I think, is of, of, of real significance. But what's really going on now and what is really exciting are those developments around hip hop uh, and around uh, rap and so on. Um, Denise Chyla being the most obvious uh, uh, exponent of that, uh, Ross and Gano family, but also in Limerick City more generally. So it's really interesting to see, you know, Hazy Hayes and others who are uh, performing. And I think, I think Music Generation, that, that project in Limerick, uh, that has been hugely important. Um, I think the, the phenomenal success uh, of, of Denise Chyla uh, and the Rusangano family of Murley and God knows. That is the most exciting stuff I have seen in such a long time. I took a chance and I went to a socially distant gig there a couple of months ago in Dolan. So there were 20 pods of four people. So I had a pod with my wife and two close friends and we saw Denise Chyla perform her, um, her album Go Bravely. And again, it, it struck me that it was one of those big moments in my life where music is concerned. Uh, I have said in lots of situations, and I'm happy to say it on, on this podcast, that I think Janice Chala will, I think she'll win a Grammy. I think she is going to be hugely globally successful. Um, her music is, is, is phenomenal. Uh, I think what is also interesting uh, about her music is uh, Janice Chala is a phenomenal uh, role model for young women. Um, she's a phenomenal role model in terms of the kinds of things that she talks about. So she does talk about race, she talks about ethnicity, she talks about social class, um, and uh, it's, I mean, it's really exciting music, but there's a very strong message there, and particularly about gender and sexuality, and uh, that is kind of off the scale in a, in a really good way. So that's very exciting. 
Mm. Do you think there's a connection? I don't know if this is an odd question, but if you look at Limerick and you look at maybe Manchester, you know, a couple of years ago, do you think that there is a connection with, I don't know, maybe a kind of a working class society or maybe the people that maybe feel, and maybe, I don't know, a rainy, a rainy city or something like that, that it makes people creative. I I mean, the climate is, you know, is something that will sometimes crop up and feature, but I think, um, I think you're onto something. There is in in when when we study music, um, there is a, a a focus in some research on what are called third cities, and Limerick. The parallel with Manchester is well made. Uh, Limerick is a, a post-industrial city, predominantly a working class city, and certainly, again, just to mention the Cranberries. If you go back to the late 1980s when the Cranberries were formed. Um, they formed and lots of other bands also formed at that time. And that was a, at a time of, I mean, I remember it, I was a young man, but I remember unemployment in Ireland and in Limerick was as high as 19%. And we know that at times of economic recession, one of the things that happens is that young people would often, would, you know, not having many choices, will turn to creativity as a way of expressing themselves. And um, I, I think that's what it's about. And I, I think kind of in that bigger sense, um, I think two things about Limerick. First of all, like industry went into decline, so there were fewer jobs. But I think it's also interesting in Limerick uh, that there has been a very long tradition of music making, of bands. For example, um, a friend of mine who, who passed away uh, recently, Paddy Brennan, a man who documented music uh, in Limerick uh, really, really well. He wrote one time about um, Hyde Road in Limerick, just up there from the railway station in Limerick. And he counted the number of bands and show bands that came from a single street. And again, there was a brass band there. There was a brass and reed band there. There were show bands like the Bensons. There was the Healy's, you know, you can name lots and lots of, of people involved in the music business. So it's a, it's a, it's a complex thing, but I think the, the, I think there's something in what you're saying, you know, I think, and I think there is that kind of need about, about creativity. I also think that um, in a way I, I like being from Limerick because you can be a pain in the arse by, by which I mean that we're, you know, cities and places that aren't the metropolis are often looked down upon, you know, and uh, like bands like The Fall from Manchester, like it's very much that kind of, you know, Manchester versus the metropolis. And I think there's a degree of that uh, where, where Limerick is concerned as well, in a good way. I think maybe it might as well create a deepness to, to music and lyrics, because even as you were saying, people in Limerick and, you know, even rappers in Limerick we had on a couple of weeks ago, we had Will Z, who is sure. from a travelling background and he, and he does, you know, he raps about that and we have a couple yeah. of other rappers, you know, Hazy Hayes, and um, they do rap about suicide and things that would affect yeah. Limerick and things well, like that. I was going to say that, that I mean, I probably, I'm probably a jack of all trades and a master of none, but I mean, I, so I, have, I have a variety of hats. So like kind of in my day job as a sociologist, I mean, I write about music, but the other thing I write about uh, with people like Martin Power and uh, Aileen Delan and, and uh, Amanda Haynes in, in, in UL, uh, we've written a lot about stigmatized communities in Limerick. And one of the big issues about that is that there are estates that have become stigmatized and those stigmas have a powerful impact on, on people's perceptions of places. Um, one of the interesting aspects of that debate is about whether stigmas can be overcome. And we've looked a lot, for example, at Moy Ross. And one of the issues in Moy Ross, one of the interesting things about Moy Ross is that 
there is a equally um, a celebration of Moiras in community festivals, but I'm really interested in the way in which young people in places like Moiras or elsewhere sing about their lives. So they sing about being from a neighborhood that's looked down upon, you know, and, uh, and I think that's, again, that's very, very interesting. Uh, it, it's interesting, not even as a, as an academic or as a professor, but it's interesting uh, from the point of view of just looking at how people make sense of their, of their lives. Um, I come from a council estate, so in spite of my posh accent or whatever, and I mean that kind of facetiously, but I actually come from um, a, 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 a local authority corporation estate in Limerick, and certainly as a young man, I would have experienced that kind of thing about people maybe looking down on you is maybe too strong a way to say it, but almost some air of suspicion about the idea that you're, you're not from the middle classes. So I think that that has always appealed to me, that topic. Yeah, yeah well, hopefully the, the social commentary can maybe act as a, a weapon for change or something, you know, but um, yeah. Yeah. I know, yeah. I know you've said in previous interviews as well that you do have a, a gras for Limerick and even the crankiness that Limerick people have and the quick wish of this that, that Limerick people have and it, it's it's endearing like it is definitely an endearing quality but you're even saying as you said the accent as well and the stigmatization of the accent is there something about Limerick that you think is extra special that you know maybe because oh I think I mean it's interesting you mentioned accent I mean I think the way in which we the way in which we use language is very particular to uh, Limerick so we essentially now, we're not unique in Ireland in this regard. So we, we, we effectively speak Hiberno-English. So we don't speak Queen's English. We speak Hiberno-English. And I remember things like my, my nana, for example. So I'm, I'm from, I'm half Wexford, half Limerick. So my, my father came from Wexford. My mother's family or a working class family from the inner city of Limerick. And my Limerick nana, if you like. Uh, so for example, one of her phrases that she would use was, and we were very little, and if we were making noise or we were acting up or whatever like that, my nana would say, you're not going to make a randy boo out of this place. And, and years later, I was kind of thinking about this word. And that's from the French rendezvous. And it's kind of interesting just to see those kind of overlaps of, of language. I know um, my mother, uh, who was a great singer and a, a great woman for words and phrases, like fantastic phrases, um, again, the kind of English that she spoke and the phraseology she ha would use, like it's literally just maybe a generation or two away from her family would have been speaking Irish and so on. So there's that. Then I think there's this other dimension, which is we use irony in Limerick in a fantastic way. And I think oftentimes outsiders don't actually get that, you know. So you can say to somebody like, um, hello, Katie, I won the lotto. And you might say you did. And so if you, if you write that down, it, it just reads as you did. But if you listen to the tone, this incredulous disbelief, you know, you did. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I, mean, I just love it. I just, I just love the, I just love the, the humor and the sarcasm and it, it's, it's really rich. And again, I think it's interesting. I mean, I mentioned that Limerick is predominantly a working class city. And yet I think that's certainly the case. And I think therefore, Class is a very interesting aspect of language in, 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 in the city. And um, yeah, I'm endlessly fascinated uh, by, by, by it.
I, I was reading in a previous interview, you said that I uh, got a, a giggle out of it. Your uncle used to use a turn of phrase, but he'd get it wrong. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah. and what, what, was, what was the story there? Yeah. So instead of saying a barrister at law, now my uncle was a writer. My uncle wrote for the Limerick leader. So he would have been commenting on this. Right. And so like he would talk about somebody saying, overhearing somebody saying, uh, it isn't a solicitor you need for that. Instead of saying a barrister at law, the person would say you need a banister at law, right? So, you know, just, just, just like really interesting use of, really interesting use of language. And again, I mean, I mentioned my mother, her brother was a journalist with the Limerick Leader and over maybe 30 years, he, on a, on a weekly basis as a journalist, he had a column called, initially in Irish, called Imuscrivall Fane, and then it became uh, anglicized so it was in my own scribble and in my own scribble was that it was literally kind of these zany things that he'd heard about on his travels in in, in Limerick you know if he was in a pub drinking a pint or he was going to going to some meeting or uh, an exhibition in the city just those kind of quirky things he would hear you know and I think there's um I think this brings up sort of something else I think that there is a richness to working class life that I think is often ignored and I think there is a there is a richness and a depth to ordinary working class life in Limerick and indeed elsewhere that is often missed, you know, and I think uh, sometimes majority culture kind of assumes we're all middle class or we all want to be middle class. And uh, I think we're, we're, we actually miss out by ignoring, ignoring that, you know, and again, I'm thinking about like the really interesting writers from Limerick. Now, Donald Ryan's a good friend of mine. Donald is from Nina, but now lives in Limerick and teaches creative writing at UL. He has a great ear for things that might be said in Limerick. The poet uh, John Liddy from Rathban, who now lives in Madrid, has lived in Madrid for most of his life. He has a famous poem from the 1960s called On Being Called Scum. And the poem ends with this phrase, of course, scum always rises to the top. And uh, again, John Liddy has a great ear for, for, for Limerick and the way in which language is used in the city. My good friend, Sarah Moore Fitzgerald, who's a professor by day in the University of Limerick, but now a very successful um, young adult fiction writer. And again, Sarah has a great ear for local accent. So it, it's endlessly fascinating. Well, you write yourself about class. I read one of your creative writing stories was in the in the Irish Times and it was called Making a Stand and that was about class oh, yeah. as well so you know yeah. is this something that you like to I suppose tell that story through your creative writing? Yeah it is I mean I think when I started out writing and I, I always kind of wrote stuff and only in the last five years I to borrow a phrase I sort of came out as a as a, as a creative writer I'd always been tricking around and I suppose about five or six years ago I began to begin to publish creatively. And obviously I'd done all the usual academic carry on that we have to do as, as, as professors and so on. So this was a kind of a new departure. And um, there's certainly an overlap between what I'm interested in, in terms of my academic writing and what I write about creatively. My sons who are grown up, I mean, they're in their twenties, but like one of them says, Jesus dad, you know, all you ever write about are losers, you know? And I mean, he's obviously winding me up and making fun, but he, he, it's a perceptive comment in that a lot of the creative writing stuff I've done, it's often about people who are very marginalized and they may be marginalized because of their, their class background. It may be because of, of some other kind of stigma. And the story you, you mentioned called Making a Stand was a short story the Irish Times published about a man who basically is homeless and he talks about being both visible and being highly visible as a homeless man, but 
most of the time being ignored. And I think this is interesting that homeless people are both highly visible in, in some instances, but they're also invisible. And many people will walk past homeless people in the street or are not even, I mean, I've lately, again, I've been listening to a young woman on the television a couple of weeks ago, and she was talking about the simple fact of just speak to us, have a word, you know, offer us a cup of tea, you know, you know, just have a chat and treat me like a human being. So that story making a stand, I mean, the, the, the premise of the story was about a homeless man who decides to go and sleep in the crib at Christmas time and he gets arrested and he ends up in court and he effectively the story revolves around the speech that he makes to the judge about why he did what he did. And the story tries to dispel a lot of the mythologies about homelessness. The idea that all homeless people are addicts or alcoholics or, you know, old men or, or whatever. And, you know, it, it tried to humanize the story. And uh, that's what that was about. That's actually, that's an interesting story because it, it started as a poem and I wrote it as a poem and then I wrote, rewrote it as a, as a, as a short story. So it's, it's, a, it's a theme I've come back to. And I suppose just more generally, uh, like the very first short story I put out five, six years ago, and they got a commendation on uh, RT's Arena program on, on Radio One. And again, it was about the world from the point of view of a homeless man who was sleeping in the doorway of an old video shop. And uh, the story was called Goodnight Scarlet. And this homeless man was basically being watched over by a poster of Scarlett Johansson. And he was in love in his mind with Scarlett Johansson. And the last thing he said every night was he said goodnight to Scarlett Johansson, like through the window of the disused video store. And again, it was about articulating how this person is a human being. They have feelings, they have losses, they have sadness, they have strengths like any other human being. And it was about just humanizing the person and it was written from the point of view of sitting at street level. So a lot of the commentary at the beginning talks about people's ankles and about, you know, women with their toenails painted vermilion. And he's giving out about men wearing uh, socks with sandals, fawn colored socks with sandals. And it's kind of funny, but it's also meant to be a kind of a very deliberate commentary on seeing the world from literally sitting on a path where, again, people ignore you, you know, and they just see a body with a sleeping bag or, or whatever. So yeah, uh, it's informed a lot of that. And um, yeah, there is a kind of a consistent uh, uh, thread, I suppose, in, in the writing that does connect then with the, you know, stuff that I would do as an academic and, and, and my interest in music as well. Yeah, and on your interest in music, I was actually in a class of yours and it was the week that David Bowie died. And Ooh, yeah. you were, well, you were just incredibly saddened you were you just it seems like there had been a, a definite moment in your life his death you've a great respect for him and his music yeah hugely so my wife is probably one of the world's biggest david bowie fans and we our, our book of essays on david bowie which we published in 2015 i, I published the book with uh, two colleagues in ul and the dedication i put in the book was i, I thanked liz for lending me her David Bowie records a million years ago. And she's a big David Bowie fan and has been all her life. And, and so, so, so have I. And it, like, I suppose if I have time, I'll just kind of backtrack a little bit. So David Bowie, I had been a huge fan of his music and Bowie is so intricate and there's so much to David Bowie. I mean, like he literally travels on layer after layer of meaning in his videos and his songs, right? So he's a, in a good way, a kind of a minefield in terms of, if you're interested in what I'm interested in, in terms of music and the social significance of music and what it means to people, then David Bowie is the, the, the kind of big starting point. So David Bowie had disappeared effectively. Well, he, he'd become ill and he had stopped doing gigs and recording. And 
in 2012, we decided in UL to hold the first ever conference about David Bowie in the world. And we, we held this conference and there was about 350 people from all over the world, from New Zealand, Australia, Germany, I could go on at the conference. And I had a lot of interaction with David Bowie's organization about the conference. So here's a, a kind of a quick UL story. I asked the David Bowie organization, you know, I let them know we were doing this and was that okay? And I kind of didn't expect to hear from them. And they came back to me within kind of 24 hours. And their first question was in terms of artwork, could they promote it on their website? Absolutely. But they wanted to superimpose Bowie's face on the rusty man in the UL Plaza. So they were asking me my permission, could they do this? And obviously I said, yes. So we had some interactions with them. And then Bowie sent a message that he wanted, could he have recordings of the lectures? Could he hear what people were talking about his work? So we did that. And we did David Bowie mugs and we did t-shirts and we did all sorts of carry on, right? Uh, we're big on our merch. And we sent him two of everything for his archive. And then in 2015, uh, the book was published. And he, David Bowie, got the very first copy of the book. So there was all this kind of interaction going on in the background. So then, as we know, Bowie, I mean, I so 2012 is interesting because we had no idea that David Bowie was going to come back out in, in January 2013 with a new record. And he surprised everybody. So we were doing a conference three months before this, like in a highly sensitive time. He was trying to keep things under wraps. So then we did our conference. We kept up contact. And then, of course, he made two absolutely phenomenal records. I mean, just beyond beyonds in terms of, of, of being phenomenal. And um, the final record, Black Star, he made and he held on, he was dying and he held on until it was released and he passed. And even in that, like, like again, I could bore your listeners forever about this, like, but the, the amount of effort that Bowie put into the videos he made for the song Black Star and for Lazarus and so on. And even the album cover, we discovered a few months later that if you held the album cover, uh, if you left the album cover on a windowsill for a couple of days, the sunlight actually changed the printing on the album cover so something else came to light so even in death like he was you know, leaving messages behind right so really really fascinating and I suppose I was really moved by just the the art and I mean that in a serious way I think it's almost it's only a coincidence that if David Bowie had existed in the 19th century like I think he would have been kind of an Oscar Wilde figure he would have been a poet he would have been a painter and he was all of those things but I think it's almost just a coincidence that in the 20th century 21st century he was a rock star He's really, really one of those hugely significant artists that I think we will talk about forever. I'm glad you were at the class. Like one of the things I did just after he died, I began to notice that fan shrines began to pop up around the world. So I went to Brixton in London where this huge fan shrine had popped up and fans are leaving behind hundreds, and I mean hundreds of letters and notes about the significance Bowie had in their lives. So I recorded all of that took lots of photographs, photographed as many notes and letters as I possibly could. Equally, uh, in Heddon Street in London, uh, where Bowie uh, was photographed and had recorded there, I went there. And then I was lucky enough to uh, be in New York. And again, outside Bowie's apartment, again, this happened. Um, just last year, my wife and I were traveling to Berlin uh, on holidays. And my big thing in Berlin was to go and visit the streets where David Bowie lived with Iggy Pop in the 1970s. And again, even last year, like a few years on since he's died, people still come by most days and they leave messages and notes about Bowie outside the flat, the apartment where he lived. So 
like there's huge, uh, I mean, I'm hugely interested in the music. It's really of huge importance to me personally. I think the things that fans do around David Bowie are endlessly fascinating. So yeah, it's just there forever. And again, sort of zipping back to the creative writing, published a poem in the old Limerick Journal two, two issues ago, and poem is called Moore's Road. And Moore's Road is a very small little road in Mungret in um, County Limerick near the cement factory. And my dad worked in the cement factory and the cement factory where the graveyard now is in Mungret in County Limerick in the 1970s, early 80s, they used to be, that land used to be allotments. So before allotments became trendy, there used to be allotments there. So when I was 15, I would be on my hands and knees picking potatoes in Mungret. And the very first time I ever heard David Bowie's Ashes to Ashes was literally, I was on the ground in Mungret in a, in a dirty, wet, August, muddy day. And again, I heard that song Ashes to Ashes and I've written about it. I mean, the poem is about, it's about lots of things. It's about my dad, I suppose, in the main. But it's about a conversation I had at the age of 15 in part with my dad about David Bowie and, and my dad's views on him and, and that. And um, yeah, so like all of these things, I think, connect uh, in, in, in what I hope is an interesting way. Oh, definitely. You know, I think it definitely all ties together because these very culturally significant and yeah. fandoms and, and whatever else. But I wanted to ask as well, you have your own band. And that's, I think, yeah. Sorry, would you like to tell us about that? Yeah, that's that's a situation that's evolving. It's kind of I, I mean I never do things by half, right? So okay, so there is a there is a band called Section Seventeen, and Section Seventeen is interesting in that it comprises of five men who should probably know better, and we're all kind of of the same age profile. Um, the guitarist is the professor of psychiatry in UL, David Maher. The bass player is a professor of medicine in UCD called Walter Cullen. Our singer is um, a doctor who runs an A&E department in Birmingham. He's, he's Irish, but he, he works in Birmingham. Our drummer is a, 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 an, an architect. And then there's me. And Section 17 got together. Uh, initially, we had a conference in UL to do with the band Joy Division. And Section 17 got together to perform at that conference. So we were effectively we were doing a session about men and mental health and about how music can be used as a way of getting people to express their, their feelings. And I don't think there's any other band in the world other than Joy Division that encapsulates what depression uh, sounds like. Uh, so we performed at that and we performed just songs by Joy Division. And we thought that was that. And then we kind of tricked around a bit and did a bit more with that and then began to write our own material. And that now has evolved. And uh, so we're now writing original material. There was an offshoot last year uh, where David Maher and I recorded as a different outfit. And we recorded with a really, really well-known singer called Gavin Friday. Now, Gavin Friday was a member of the Virgin Prunes. He's a performer, an artist in his own right. And I suppose more recently, Gavin Friday is, I think you won't mind me saying, Gavin Friday is the sort of creative brains behind U2. So all of the stage design, album artwork, video content, even the postage stamps that on post released of U2 lately, Gavin Friday would have been the person who, he's their creative director. So David and I and Gavin Friday, last year we recorded a song by The Fall as um, uh, the group uh, called Frigid Stars. And so that's kind of an offshoot and that, that happened and we performed that. 
And um, so section 17 is evolving and we're writing material. And um, I won't say a huge amount more. Uh, all I will say is that we have, we're working towards a release and uh, we are actively working on stuff. And I, I mean, it's difficult in the sense that we're all involved in too many other things and we live in different countries and so on. Um, but we're, we're, we're finally at a stage that we hope in 21 next year to release some uh, original material. But that's all I'd say about that for now. Oh, well, that's great. Well, that's very exciting. It's nice to know there'll be some art coming out of 2021 after yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, I think what I would say about it briefly is that, and I probably talk too much, but like what I would say about it briefly is that I think what I've learned in the last five years uh, or, or more is that creativity no matter what kind of creativity it is so whether it's playing the guitar on your own or whether it is you know playing music um i mean i played my first gig in dolan's at the age of 50 and uh liz my wife and i was going on about how excited i was about this and uh my wife was saying well, I, I can't believe that it actually took you so long to do this you know and i think so the lesson from that it's never too late and uh and and, and i think particularly you know when it's fun and enjoyable and I, and I also think it's important that we aren't just one thing, that we're not just a sociology professor or a, a journalist or whatever people do. Um, you know, I, I think there are so many strings to people's bows. And I think that as many people as possible should engage in creativity. I mean, again, if you, if you think about the, what's going on with hip hop, um, People talk a lot about punk rock and how it kind of revolutionized music. I think actually what's revolutionized music in the last 10 years is, is garage band on, on, on Macintosh. I think the fact that you now, if you can get a laptop, even for a few hundred euros, software is freely available to you to compose music. You know, so GarageBand will allow you to do that or, you know, other apps, uh, you know, like, so the web is full of freeware that allows now people to be creative. And I think, um, like a lot of the music that, that the hip hop artists are, are creating, it's digitally produced and so on, 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 presumably on laptops or using MIDI keyboards or, or whatever. I mean, something like this, I have one here, right? So something like this is, like this is about 30 euros cost, right? So it, it is possible to, uh, to engage in creativity very cheaply. And I think uh, it's becoming cheaper and I would really love as many people as possible to write music. And even if they only do that for their own ears or their family or whatever like that, or their friends, so be it. But it's important. Wow. Well, you do have loads of strings to your bow and uh, <laughs> a very, very creative individual. But I could not ask you, what would be your Desert Island discs? Because I think one thing I definitely want to find out from you. Is it more than one song? I'll, I'll give you three. I'll give you three. Oh, wow. I think the song Love is Lost by David Bowie. And I, there's, and I'm going to be really anoraki now, but uh, James Murphy remixed it uh, from LCD sound system. So the James Murphy remix of David Bowie's Love is Lost, that would be there. Even though Morrissey has become a very problematic person in recent years in terms of things he might say, say the Smith song, There is a Light That Never Goes Out, or his solo song, Life is a Pigsty. So I'm gonna take two there. And then something completely different. I really uh, like the band folk group called Planksty. So their album, simply called Planksty, 
called a kind of a black cover. There is a song on that album sung by Andy Irvine and the song is called The West Coast of Clare. And that's a song that brings me somewhere else entirely. So all of those, but I mean, I could go on forever <laughs> with this. And, um, and if I could have, uh, I have to have a fourth one. So I think I'd probably include any song by The Fall, uh, but probably the song Powder Keg by The Fall. Yeah. There you the four. And you're sticking with them. Yeah. Very well, yeah. they're a good, a good, a good yeah. selection, good eclectic mix. So yeah. I think we'll, I'll, I'll come to my final question. And I don't know if maybe you have answered it throughout the course of this, but what is the thing you treasure most about Limerick? I treasure my friends and my family. I treasure my colleagues that I work with. But I, I, I treasure Limerick itself. I treasure the city of Limerick, its culture, its humour, its language, its creativity. I mean, it's a really interesting place to live. And I know people doing marketing and marketing the city will go on about edginess and all the rest of it. But I think it does have an edginess. And I think the edginess then feeds into the creativity that we hear. And uh, so whether that's writing, whether it's novels or poetry, whether it's hip hop, whether it's music, whether it's art by a painter like John Shinners, uh, whether it's Denise Chyla, um, I mean, there's a load of really interesting things. Actually, the, per- and the person I didn't mention who was from here, Kevin Barry. Kevin Barry, uh, Kevin Barry's writing, again, you know, his novel City of Bahan. It's probably located linguistically somewhere between Limerick and Cork or between Mitchellstown and Limerick. But again, you know, Kevin Barry captures that kind of richness of, of language. So, yeah, just the city itself. And I think it's crankiness. And I mean cranky in a good way, right? Yeah, a contrariness. Yeah, contrariness. That's Endearing the contrariness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. Well, Deverell, thank you so much for coming on Limerick Treasures. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you for listening to the Limerick Voice podcast. Lots of other great content coming this year, so please keep an eye out on all of our social media platforms. And remember, when Limerick speaks, we listen.